Father, we engage on a, in a holy task when we open the Word of God. You indeed have spoken. You do indeed speak to the extent that Your Word is shared. We desire to worship You in the Scriptures unhindered. We recognize that many of us come weak and fatigued and some in pain, some sick and distracted. Would You rivet our attention on Your glorious story of redemption? Use even the book of Ruth to prepare our hearts to fellowship with the Lord Jesus around His table. We ask Your Spirit to bear witness to Your truth that He would encourage us in areas where we need to be encouraged and convict us in areas of our lives through Your truth that we need conviction. Use this time for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus in whose name we ask it. Amen. I'd invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the Old Testament book of Ruth. I trust that this is not where the pages of your Bible stick together. Ruth is known by some as, as a romance of redemption. Everyone loves a good love story. And unless my daughter have to inform you that I do not sit down and, and uh, watch uh, chick flicks, I'm, we're not talking about sappy romances here. We're talking about this theme of where, where people, everyone lives happily ever after. Where you're made to feel the tension that is developed in the plot of the story. And to experience through them such things that we ought to experience through the characters of Naomi and Ruth. That of courage and commitment through difficulty. Especially today, as, as we're going to see in the first chapter, uh, competing realities, that of tragedy and loyalty. It's an amazing little book. Uh, the book of Ruth is still read during the Feast of Weeks. It is the only Old Testament book named after a non-Jewish person. It's one of only two books in the Bible named after a woman, and uh, you that are astute, uh, recollect the other one, the book of Esther. It's the only Old Testament book named after an ancestor of the Lord Jesus. So Ruth narrates one of the best-known stories of the Bible, focusing on God's work for an impoverished family. It's one of the greatest illustrations of God's redeeming love found anywhere in the Old Testament. By any standard, it's a classic short story, and it's been called the most beautiful short story ever written. That's because it's inspired by God. Ruth's name means friendship, and she truly, throughout the story, lives up to her name because her biography demonstrates true sacrificial love of a true friend. She exhibits what Solomon would teach in Proverbs 17, 17, that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. The Apostle Paul instructs us through his book to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 11. 
that all the entourage of Old Testament participants in God's redemption plan, from the patriarchs to even these women, uh, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, Paul says that these Old Testament examples were recorded, they were written down for our admonition. Books like Ruth beg the question as to why people aren't more engaged in uh, reading through the daily Bible reading plan as a church, like many of us have been doing for the last uh, seven months. It fills in our theology. It fills in the panorama of history of what God has been working for the praise and the glory of His great name to admonish the saints today. And we learn from these Old Testament stories or accounts, both by negative example and positive example. I I hope that we will see this morning that uh, the example that Naomi gives us, uh, we don't want to follow to the T. And yet Ruth steps into the picture and gives this positive example, and she fleshes, fleshes out what a Proverbs 31 woman looks and acts like. So let me invite you to notice with me the three scenes before us. Uh, Since I said this is the romance of redemption, we're going to be looking at the book. Each chapter in our English Bibles captures another act. This is act one, scene one, as we begin reading in Ruth Chapter 1. So, so notice with me the three scenes. Uh, this is a, uh, a passage of, uh, of 22 verses, and what we've got here is three scenes we, so that we can emulate a godly example, that we could shun wicked examples, so that we would understand and implement covenant faithfulness and commitment in this wicked age that you and I live in, so that we can exhibit real faith real obedience. So as I read through the text, be thinking of these three scenes. Verses 1 through 6, scene 1 is the problem in the story that we're introduced to. Verses 7 through the first half of verse 19, homeward bound, headed back to Bethlehem. And verse, the second half of verse 19 to 22 is the deep emotion of emptiness. And we will leave chapter 1 in the last verse with this glimmer, this ray of hope of grace and mercy of the Lord's sovereign provision. So notice these three scenes as I begin to read for us. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. We are told, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. 
Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited His people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each one of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we'll surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I have said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. So they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Now when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. When they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Act 1, chapter 1. We have, first of all, in scene 1, verses 1 through 6, the plight of the whole story. It gives us both the setting of the time and the day and the age, the period in which this book was written, as well as the problem. And so in this little prologue, we're introduced to the victims of famine and death. This isn't a story that is so different from the story we experience this is life in a fallen, sin-cursed world, a world that is hard. This is the same as the daily experience of people today as it was then. The author of this book tells us that it came, this came about in the days when the judges governed. So insert this little four-chapter book of Ruth in the previous book in your English Bible, the book of Judges. This probably took place during the time of Jair. But this is the time when the judges ruled. It orients us to the time period. And you need to remember about the time of the judges. This was a dark, dark period 
for Israel. It was a time when people followed their own moral and ethical code rather than serving by the Lord's standard delineated in Scripture and modeled in the future by His Son. Judges 17.6, as well as the last chapter, Judges 21 and verse 25, orient us to what the bleak day of the judges. And he records here in the very last verse of the book of Judges that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Write that caption above the book in your mind. This is the time period in which the, the account of Ruth takes place. It was a time of apostasy, warfare, decline, violence, moral decay, and anarchy. There was a need. A need for a centralized government. A need for a righteous king to lead God's people. It's a bleak time. In other words, we don't have to go very far as we step with one foot in the context of the day and age of Scripture and then walk with the second foot of our personal experience, contemporary significance in our day. It's much the same. Like them, we need a closer view into the providential workings of God. Beloved, you need to learn to walk in covenant faithfulness and sacrificial love as modeled through Ruth. So that as the world sees a living, active love for the brethren, there will be no denying that you are His disciples. To put it in Johannine language from John chapter 13. So against a dark, dark backdrop... We have this most wonderful and inspiring romance of redemption. Putting God on display, orchestrating all the events and the details for His glory and His people's good. Even working through faithful, obedient servants. His, in other words, His sovereignty not unremoved from His people's faithful obedience. Oh, how much we need the example of Ruth in our day. We need the courage of Ruth, the commitment of Ruth, the selfless, sacrificial love of Ruth. Her actions stand in sharp contrast to the moral corruption and the, and the chaos of her day. She was a light in the darkness. So let's together learn from this inspired story of Ruth. The presentation of the problem and the, and the solution. And we've got this tension that we start off with that, that, that makes a great story. Yo, what are we going to do? There's fretting going on. And then uh, you know, as the story runs amok, we're introduced to the Kingsman Redeemer who will not only bless her, but bless her family. But that's, that's next week. So we find ourselves in the Day of Judges. And we are not only introduced that it is a bleak, dark time, of judges, but it's a time of famine. So we start to get introduced to that tension, the difficulty, the problem in the story. It complicates very shortly within the time frame of 10 years. Naomi loses, you know, you go out of familiar, a familiar land, 
what was known to the Jew as the God-blessed land, the holy land, because there's famine. And you go to an unfamiliar land, and that guy who you'd committed to in covenant marriage dies on you. You can begin entering into the turmoil of Naomi now. Not only does she lose her husband, her only means of support, her only means of protection, she loses her only boys as well. She survives them, left alone in a foreign land. She went from Bethlehem to Moab. There's a lot of irony in the book. One in particular, Elimelech, the spiritual leader of the home, leads them from Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread, but there was no bread. And he seeks food in Moab. We're introduced to this amazing irony going from Bethlehem to Moab. Moab is a place associated in Israel's memory as a place which withheld food. They worshipped Chemosh and other pagan deities. They fought against Israel on two different recorded events. One of them is found in Judges 3, verses 12 through 30. Time fails us, so if you wanted to jot that down for, for future uh, time of study, that's the first event of Moab fighting against Israel. The second is recorded in 1 Samuel 14 and verse 47. It took place under Saul's rule. And so we're told that it's the time of judges. It's the time in which there's a famine in the land of Bethlehem. And so they moved to Moab. And so all throughout this whole prologue for the first six verses, or at least five verses, we're introduced to the tension, the problem. And verse 6 starts to ease the tension a little bit because notice uh, again what we, what we read here, uh, that she had heard, middle of the verse, in the land of Moab, the far, far away foreign place that she lived for the past 10 years, that the Lord had visited His people in giving them food. Wow, the, the house of bread's become a house of bread again. There's food back in my homeland. I'm out of here. It's important for us to recognize the language used here when she hears that the Lord had visited His people. You could do justice by inserting even the English word graciously visited next to that word because that is the picture here. There's relief from the famine in Judah because God is not only king and ruler of the universe, but also of His land and of His people. When He visits His people all throughout Redemptive history. If you were to launch off into a study, a, a little word study of how God has visited His people, we're told in Genesis 21 and verse 1, remember the promise that God had given to the patriarch? And He says, you're, you're, I'm going to bless you. going to take care of you. You're going to have children. You don't know my wife. Sarah. And we are told in Genesis 21 that the Lord took note, operative word, 
took note of Sarah as he had promised. And what was the end result? She conceived. Wow. God miraculously intervened. God graciously intervened. There's in Genesis 50 the account where Joseph promises that God is going to visit His people again. He's not going to forget His people. God is a a covenant-keeping, a promise-keeping God. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse number 21, God in His grace and kindness saw fit to visit Hannah. She was another barren woman, not unlike Sarah. And He visited her. And she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Don't skip over that too fast in your readings of Scripture. It's a huge deal. The psalmist picks up on this string of worship of how God is gracious to His own, how He protects and provides for and visits His people in Psalm 65 in verse number 9. Lord, You are the one who visit the earth and cause it overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water and You prepare their grain for thus You prepare the earth. He's our sovereign, our sustainer. You know, this, this lavishness that the psalmist talks about here, that when, he, when God visits the earth, He doesn't leave it the same, it overflows. That's why in his first psalm, he says, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And what does the psalmist put on? How does, God, how does he put God on display? for His grace and His kindness and His lavishness in that kindness, that that man, the godly man, the one that walks in step with the principles of the Word of God will be like a tree planted by rivers of water. God visits His people. He provides lavish grace. This is, this is one of those uh, threads woven all throughout God's story of redemption. So God visits His people. Psalmist would say elsewhere, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. You fill in the rest. Nor their seed begging for bread. Naomi questioned that. She left the house of bread, went to a place where now, where there once was bread, is no more bread, and there's bread back at the homeland of bread. Ah! Her head spinning. Lord, what are you doing? So there is the possibility, this glimmer of hope, this ray of hope in verse 6, that maybe Naomi will find some relief. And that leads us to scene 2. Scene 2, headed for home. Verses nine through, uh, 7 through 19. Notice the... Uh, you know, we're not going to read through all those verses again, but notice, notice the, what's going on here. This is what uh, you might call an intense moment of fellowship between her and her in-laws, her daughters-in-law. In this, 
she more than once repeatedly tells her girls, go back home. Don't come with me. I'm going to go back home and die. They'd been good to her, her daughters-in-law. There was a great relationship here. Verse, verse number 8, she pronounces blessing on them. She asked that God would deal kindly with them as they have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. You are great wives for my boys. You're great daughters-in-law. I pray that God would bless you. Go back home. Don't come with me. Common sense said go back home. She urges their return to their land that there's no future. There is no hope with me. So go return. God bless you. God be with you as you were with me and with your husbands. Verse 8, excuse me, verse 11, she uh, gives a more compelling argument second time in telling them to go back home. She says, turn back. I'm too old. I don't have any more kids left in my womb. Besides, if I did, would you really wait around for the next several years till they're old enough as a young man, a young teenage boy for you to marry? Verse 13. Third time. And, and this is where we start getting to a picture of... Uh, uh, where the struggle spiritually was taking place, the, the, the deep issues of the heart. Notice what she says. He said, she, she says, uh, it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She's grieved. She's grieved for them because God took her boys, their husbands. That's what God did. And verse 14 leads us to a bit of a turning point. As a matter of fact, in my preaching Bible, this is where the next uh, uh, paragraph begins, where the title above it says Ruth's loyalty. But this is, this is a transition time. Notice what happens. Three times she says to her girls, go home. There's no hope. There's no future with me. There's only death. There's only barrenness. So Orpah said, all right. She kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. And at this point in the story, Orpah Begin, be, becomes what uh, uh, you drama people would know what foil means. I didn't know. I had to look it up. She becomes the foil for, uh, for Ruth. She is, Orpah is Ruth's contrast. She went home. We're not going to hear hiding her hair of her again. She did what everyone in the story expects her to do. It's good logical sense. Do what mother-in-law says. Go home. Find another husband. Have provision. She kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. Ruth hugs her tightly. She, uh, maybe your English version and your translation reads, clung to her tightly. Such devotion seems stupid. Foolishness. Utter disregard. Ruth cooked her own goose in our vernacular. What are you doing? Doesn't make any sense to do what you're doing. So, don't, and you know, when I, when I uh, posture Orpah as a contrast for, for Ruth, don't read more into that than which, what is intended. Uh, 
I don't think the contrast is between a bad daughter-in-law and a good daughter-in-law. That's the wrong contrast to make. She's good. She's faithful. She's blessed by her mother-in-law. So it's not a contrast between the good and the bad. The contrast is this. Ruth is more than good. She transcends the norm. She wasn't just good. She was great. So we don't criticize Orpah for what she did. We do, however, notice Ruth for what she did as she models for us. She pictures commitment, covenant commitment, taking a vow. She makes a vow to her before God and her mother-in-law. She's devoted. She exemplifies for us in chapter 1, sacrificial love. Four times for her, Naomi says, go, shoo, back home. Verse 8, verse 11, verse 12, verse 15. Yet notice her resolve in verses 16 and 17. That but, capital B, in contrast to how Orpah responded, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I go. You lodge, I lodge. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. And it's not just for the moment. It's not just while it's convenient. Notice what she says. Where you die, I'll die and be buried. Till death parts you and me. She was urged to return she res- re- resolves. And when, when she says, your God, my God, uses, using Yahweh to express her interest in identifying with Naomi's God. So as she makes this resolve, she leaves behind her culture. Ruth leaves behind her people. Ruth leaves behind her known language. All of this out of love. Scene three. Scene three. If you were to put a caption above this, maybe that would be name change. That captures what's going on here. Naomi and Ruth come to town. The ladies are ecstatic. I say the ladies because the men are out harvesting. The ladies are at the city gates here, and uh, they're excited. But here's where the emptiness is really unpacked. It's a, it's a, uh, expressed. In Jewish understanding, names mean something. They characterize a person. And since the name Naomi literally means pleasant, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. I'm not pleasant. I don't have a pleasant experience. I'm not pleasant to be around. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because God has dealt bitterly with me. Yeah, she'd mentioned back in verse number 13 to the girls that, uh, that uh, the Lord's hand had brought bitterness into her life. This verb used of her uh, emotional distress, this is where we kind of, we try to the best of our human ability, enlightened by Scripture, to, to enter into her sandals and her experience of what it would be like. Because it was a bitter life. 
you were to trace bitterness uh, throughout Scripture in 1 Samuel 30 and verse 6, David, who ascended to the throne, who was the king of God's people, led them into war. And while they're off to war, the village is sacked. People's families are taken hostage, taken captive. So when the men, the warriors, come home, no more wife, no more kids, and it's your fault, David. It's your fault. And we're told here that there's probably this, this blaming going on. Bad move, David. Because they were filled with bitterness. What did David do? Did he lick his wounds? Did he complain? Did he engage in grumbling? We're told there in 1 Samuel 30 that in contrast to the people embittered against him, he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. There's bitterness in all kinds of stories of the Old Testament. In Lamentations, where the prophet takes up a lament, the holy city has been obliterated. Lamentations is, is a, the prophetic funeral dirge. And in chapter 1 and verse 4, where there's lamentation over Jerusalem, we are told she is bitter. She's been desolated. God's against us. Maybe there's an element or a degree of the economic destitution expressed too in this term bitterness. So what happens? Naomi comes home. Ladies are excited. Our girl's back. And she vents her emotion. She lashes out in bitterness, not wanting to live up to her name pleasant. She felt like an enemy of God. A literal rending of the Hebrew here would say, bitter, to make emphasis, putting words up front in the sentence, bitter has Almighty made my life. Bitter has He made it. Divine opposition. She feels empty. She feels hopeless. This is divine opposition. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The hand of the Lord often used in Scripture in context of war and judgment. Was Naomi right or wrong? I would tell you she is orthodox because one thing she gets right is that God is the sovereign of His own universe. So she's orthodox but skewed. God is sovereign king, king of his universe. And the, the term that's used here in verses, uh, uh, verse number 22, let, to gain context, go back to verse 21. She said, I went out of here full. I was pleasant when I left the house of bread, but the Lord's brought me back here empty, Mara. So why are you calling me pleasant instead of calling me bitter? Verse 22, Naomi returned with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The Lord, the Almighty, the one true God, has launched His case against me. Do you understand? He's sovereign. She, like other pastors of Scripture, you, you, you study through Genesis where Shaddai appears, the Almighty. 
He's the source of fertility. He's the source of life. He's the source of blessing. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8, where we've got the Abrahamic covenant. It is El Shaddai who launches into covenant relationship. The sovereign one of the universe. The one who created all that is entered into a relationship. You know, Shaddai is especially prominent in Job. He occurs uh, 31 times there. Job and his friends regard Shaddai as the sovereign king of the world. He's the source of life. He promotes justice. He provides blessing, including children. And he disciplines and judges. So what Naomi got right is that, yes, he is sovereign, but what she needed to enter into is that he is a benevolent potentate. He is not, what good is is a sovereign God who is not a good God by nature as he identifies himself all throughout Scripture? He's not some malevolent malevolent, uh, God of uh, Greek mythology that can't wait to hurt people and beat them with a billy club. Naomi, you need to be instructed that the sovereign one is a gracious one. And you never find the writer of the story of Ruth siding with Naomi's adversarial view. Hers is the lone voice in the book accusing God while all the rest of the text of Ruth teaches He is benevolent to His people. He is the source of all help, the source of all blessing. He restores fertility. He gives life. Now, we need to understand death and Distress are a constant fact in a fallen world. We live after Genesis 3, after the fall. So since we live in the same kind of world where bitterness enters in, difficulty, turmoil, how are you going to respond? When God, your Father, if you are a Christian through faith in the Lord Jesus, if He, by His sovereign, mysterious wisdom, decides to serve up lemons of trials, you're going to make lemonade? You're going to worship, enter into worship, and trust, and obedient following? Are you going to launch your cause against Him into the gall of bitterness? I know one of the uh, books that's been a particular encouragement to me in trying to think through difficulties of life. And th- you know, when you write your script, you'd write it without pain, without fatigue, and without all, all, kinds of, all kinds of drama that we experience in life, would you not? One of those booklets written by Murray, Behind a Frowning Providence. When God in His wisdom determines to take you through the difficulty... We need to remember, yes, God is in charge. His ways oftentimes are hidden. You know, I know I, if I had time, I'd share testimonies from dear friends. That I, I got a friend right now who, who uh, has served the Lord faithfully. He just went home Friday to go home and die over the next two to three weeks. But the, t- the, the testimony of he and his precious godly wife. Our our hope was never in the liver transplant. It was always in Jesus. Not the liver. His ways are hidden to Naomi. So Naomi returned. She's not the heroine of the story. The Jew is not the heroine. 
Ruth is a study of contrasts. And as you read through the book, you see tragedy, but you also see loyalty, not only of God's people, but of Him. Naomi, the Israelite, part of the covenant nation of God, Israel, should have known better. And in contrast with her is her lovable daughter-in-law from a foreign country. She's the one in chapter 1 that illustrates to us sacrificial love and commitment. It's ironic that God would use the foreigner woman, the, the one who is rescued in coming to the house of bread, who meets her new husband, who is rescued by God, who, is, who pictures for us redemption, is the one that is the Savior to her mother-in-law. She becomes the rescuer. The Moabites were under God's curse. Back in Genesis 19, verse 37, Moab was born through an incestuous relationship Lot had with his daughter. In Judges 3, Moab oppressed Israel for at least 18 years. She worshipped a foreign god, Chemosh. She gave infant sacrifices. Uh, Isaiah chapters 15 and 16 give us insight into their curse. So Moabites in scriptural usage, are symbolic of the cursed, sin-ridden people. They were shut out of the assembly of those who worshiped God. But beloved, if you would briefly turn with me to Isaiah 56, especially those of you that are, are outside of Christ, outside of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a, one of the most beautiful invitations of Scripture to people like what God did with Ruth, the foreigner, the worshiper of other gods of their own making, those that pursued sin rather than righteousness. See, the curse was only until a person turned to God and served and pleased Him. Isaiah records for us in, in Isaiah 56, verse 1, thus says the Lord, preserve justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath, keeps his hand from doing any evil. You know, so God's speaking to His people. Honor me. Obey me. I'm going to pour blessing into your life such as you've never experienced. Verse 3, not just for you, but let the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from His people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath, who holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain." I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices, they'll be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. What a magnificent opportunity. If you're outside of Christ to, to talk with Pastor Joy and myself this morning after the sermon of what it means to be in Christ, to have your sins forgiven, to be part of, of God's people. What a compelling invitation. 
Naomi needed to learn God was her advocate, not her adversary. Naomi, and so Ruth steps into the picture here. She came to Bethlehem as a foreigner, as an enemy, as the cursed, and yet chose to follow God. This is a beautiful picture of conversion. And the last thought I'll, I'll leave you in, uh, in this, these verses, as, as we already read verse 22, what's going to be unpacked next week as we continue this story of the romance of redemption, that last sentence that they came to Bethlehem, God brought them there at the right time, providentially working behind the scene to get them there at the beginning of barley harvest. The chapter started with reference to famine and it ends with reference to the lavishness of what God is doing behind the scenes and for His people. So chapter 1 shows us Ruth's resolve. A resolve to return to the house of bread, launching out to a far country she was unfamiliar with, but she proceeded in faith much in the same way that Abraham did. Here we've got a Moabite woman exhibiting faithfulness that treacherous Israel did not during the time of Israel uh, of uh, Judges. She forsakes her pagan heritage to cling to the people of God and the God of Israel. Question. Have you walked in the sandals of Naomi? Have you been afflicted by the Lord? Has your response been one of worshipful adoration or has it been characterized as the accusation that Naomi gives? Psalmist says in Psalm 146.9 that the Lord protects those residing outside their native land. He lifts up the fatherless and the widow. And this book demonstrates God's concern about the needy. Kind of like the compassion hymn that we already sang about. He sends His gospel to destitute, hopeless. Those that know unless God intervenes, unless Jesus saves them, they are hell-bent out of His presence for all of eternity. question. Have you sought by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk in the sandals of Ruth? God works sovereignly, and His finger of providence can be found all over the place for the watching eye, but He doesn't work apart from the faithful, obedient efforts of His people like we'll be introduced to next week through Boaz. Here in chapter 1, it's through the faithfulness of Ruth, He teaches Naomi. Ruth lives out God's principle of loyalty and kindness, providence, and faithful, obedient efforts of God's followers. God greatly blesses those who act faithfully and show hesed, covenant love. So this book invites us as the saints of God to be faithful servants, dispersing His covenant love abroad. I love how one commentator put how this perfect marriage of these two concepts, that the human characters are neither puppets manipulated by Yahweh's hidden hands, nor bystanders gawking at the unfolding plot from the sidelines. Rather, Yahweh oversees and works through their faithful actions. What a picture. Ruth's commitment wasn't just a polite, well, Ma, if you need me, call. It wasn't a simple, be warm, be filled, hasta la vista. She goes home with her for life. What need there is in our day and age for covenant commitment horizontally 
to our fellow believer and vertically to our God, her God. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow in your presence thanking you for the grace of the gospel. We thank you that you come nigh to those who in humility and trust turn from their sin and embrace Christ and Christ alone as their only hope, their only merit to stand in your presence. What a beautiful portrait you have inspired in the book of Ruth. Might we learn it? Might we implement it into our lives, learning from both positive and negative examples for the glory of our great King, we ask. Amen.